It's Monday, July 6th. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. This year, the graduating class of Paradise High School has had to deal with the current coronavirus pandemic and still recover from the campfire which devastated the community. For the second year in a row, graduation at Paradise High School has been a triumph over disaster. As the pandemic hit, classes had to go online again. And while the community had come close together after the fire, this time was different. Stay-at-home orders and isolation prevented students from banding together in the same way. The near future for them may still be a mystery as many colleges have not finalized plans for the fall, but the students are ready to face any challenge presented to them. Justine Kalma, reporter at The Verge, joins us for the Paradise Class of 2020. Next, as the school year approaches in the fall, it might not be the best course of action to treat schools like COVID hot zones. Thankfully, children are by and large spared most of the effects of the virus. And while they can transmit the disease, they seldom cause outbreaks. In the meantime, as schools and other countries have already opened, we can look to them to see what has worked and what has not. Some of the most appropriate safety measures could include testing and contact tracing, improved ventilation in classes, and keeping students with a single group of peers throughout each day. David Zweig, contributor to Wired, joins us for more. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. We've gotten through some really rough times together, and all it'll do is just make them stronger and create a really strong community, and that they have so many other positive things to look forward to. This is just one little blip. Joining us now is Justine Kalma, reporter at The Verge. Thanks for joining us, Justine. Thanks so much for having me. Two years ago, November 2018, was the start of the deadliest and most destructive wildfire in California. It was the Camp Fire. And as we know now, you know, it really destroyed the city of paradise up there. And for the past two years now, graduation there at Paradise High School for the students there that went through this, the community involved there, it's really been a story of triumph over disaster. But this year was a little bit different only because you had to add in the pandemic that was going on. And Justine, you wrote a story about the graduating class for 2020 there and just kind of their resiliency, how they got through it. Obviously, you know, it just happened November 2018. You're still getting over things that were happening through the fire. And then you throw this into the mix, the coronavirus pandemic. They've gone through a lot. Justine, tell us about it. How are they going through this? I was so impressed with students that I spoke with. They're unique in having survived multiple crises, really. (laughs) Um, Many of them, after the fire, uh, more than 90% of students at Paradise High School lost their homes. And and many of them, until the following school year, were living with relatives or, you know, just were not back in Paradise or still had semi-permanent places to live. And then on top of that, were thrown into the pandemic that all of us are feeling now, but uh, they were coping with on top of what they had already experienced the previous year. They were taking classes online, just as as many other students were um, across the nation. Um, but again, you know, many of them weren't even in their homes, and so it was. It really was tough for for this group, and they showed a lot of strength and, and tenacity to get through it all. Yeah, they went through this. Uh, I, I like the way you put it in here. The, they went through this new normal, this cycle of upheaval. Then there was this hope that came through 
exhaustion of having to deal with everything on multiple fronts. And then ultimately they adapted and, and got through it. So I want to talk a little bit about the schooling because when the fire happened, they quickly had to adapt to online learning. So they had to do it again in these past few months as the pandemic hit. So uh, luckily for them, they were already kind of adept to doing this. But talk about that, how how that worked out for them. That's right. So uh, they were in some ways sort of prepared to go online this school year because after the fire, their classes had gone online. And then after that, they were held in an empty office space that had been converted. And then students were finally able to get back on campus, uh, back to Paradise High this year. And it was a huge homecoming. I mean, the the theme for their yearbook this year was coming home. And, and that's right. how a lot of uh, students described that feeling to me. And then, you know, midway through their spring semester, they were pushed out once again. Luckily, though, you know, they still had Chromebooks that had been donated the previous year. So that that on top of the teachers having some experience holding online classes was helpful. But, you know, you run up against another issue in that Paradise is within um, a county where there are a lot of areas that are pretty rural and there are few cell towers. And so uh, Wi-Fi can be spotty. It wasn't, you know, it wasn't necessarily smooth sailing. But again, when it comes to a, a group of students and, and teachers that had already recently been through another another crisis, you know, this is something that they they approached with some kind of familiarity, even though these are an extraordinary situation for anyone. Yeah, and you got to put it in perspective. Obviously, I, I mentioned it was the most destructive wildfire in California history. 85 people died in the campfire. There was 18,804 homes and buildings that burned down. Really, the town of Paradise was completely gone, and they had to rebuild, and they had to go through all of this when the fire happened, then obviously again when this happened. One of the things that weighed on the minds of a lot of parents and teachers was how the kids were holding up emotionally through all of this. And it was different. When the fire hit, there was this sense of community. They can still interact with each other in other ways. But as the pandemic hit, uh, the isolation hit in a completely different way. Now they were bound to their homes or wherever they were staying. They couldn't get out and interact with each other. That's right. I mean, I would say the strength of this community is really in um, their ties with each other as much as there was an outpouring of support and and love and donations from people outside of paradise really folks that have stayed have helped each other get through and and rebuild and uh, the pandemic has been really tough because it's it strains those ties right so um, some of the staff and teachers I talked with uh, were were concerned you know, we might have a handle on online learning, but we're we're really concerned about how the the students are are holding up emotionally with all of this piling on on top of each other. You spent some time with Paradise High School valedictorian Katie Lynn Chandler. How did it go for her? What did she say about what's next for all of them, and how did graduation go? Because I know they had to do it in a in a modified way. In talking with her, she's just a really upbeat young person. She had this kind of toughness that this town, I'd say, is characterized already kind of like baked in. You know, she was one of the, you know, like I said, nine out of 10 students that that lost their homes and able to, to become valedictorian this year. 
she's a part of the leadership class that helped plan school events and, and tried to pivot to doing online and social media campaigns with other students to keep morale up. And one thing that stood out to me with her was that she learned lessons that even me as an, as an adult, I, I still try to, to keep in mind when it comes to how to, how to cope with a situation that we can't control. <laughs> um, and so she'd really learned to go with, go with the flow, as she likes to say, um, but also push ahead. And so she's, she, she'll be attending college in the fall. None of these students, I think, know whether they'll be on campus or still taking classes from their bedrooms, but they're moving forward. Yeah, I mean, there's still so much uncertainty with what the next step is, but at least they know that they can handle it. They, they've gone through these difficulties already. And as you mentioned, they've learned the lessons that can carry them on to the next step. So uh, it's just a, it's a really, uh, really sweet piece that you wrote about the class of 2020 there at Paradise High School. So I suggest everybody check it out. It's just a good piece about the class of 2020 there. And we hope nothing but the best for them. Justine Kalma, reporter at The Verge, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you so much. That requires steps like, one, ensuring that schools have funding for physical alterations like plexiglass to maximize social distancing, all the things that every scientist has told us we need to do. Joining us now is David Zweig contributor to Wired and author of Invisibles, celebrating the unsung heroes of the workplace. Thanks for joining us, David. Thanks for having me. I wanted to talk about schools and coronavirus and children going back to school in the fall. It's been a pretty hot topic of discussion of how it's going to get done. The thing I keep hearing the most is it's going to be some type of hybrid learning experience. It could be a mix of remote learning and kids in class or kids in class, but on offset days, still nobody really knows exactly how they're going to do it. But there's a lot of cues that we can look to. A lot of schools in Europe have gone back and they've done a wide range of different things. But one thing we should keep in mind is that we shouldn't try to treat schools like hot zones. For the most part, thankfully, kids are not affected by the virus in the same way. So David, tell us a little bit about this. One of the strangest or perhaps even the strangest thing about this virus is it's kind of completely passing over children. They're, of course, out of the millions and millions and millions of people who've been exposed to it, there are some cases with children who've had adverse effects and even died. But the numbers are extraordinarily low. In fact, much lower than they are for any number of ills that can afflict children. They're not exactly sure why this is happening. It's just a matter, but this is what the evidence suggests. And the evidence has only gotten stronger and stronger that kids are by and large, either very mildly symptomatic or asymptomatic. And then the second and perhaps more salient point is that children a lot of evidence is showing that they do not transmit the virus anywhere near the scale that adults do. And that's what really matters as far as opening schools, I think. Yeah, the kids are not the super spreaders that we hear about. And thankfully, that gives a lot of people that are you know, making the decisions to get them back to schools should give them a little more knowledge with how to do it. So the CDC so far has released some guidance on possible things, you know, different words like if possible and if feasible, you can do those things. But they want to keep students separate 
in class, you know, do the six feet of social distancing. They want to close down cafeterias, jungle gyms, you know, a lot of different things like that. And then masks. So they want to have kids wear masks, which for younger children is going to be a pretty difficult thing. The CDC guidelines seem to have almost no acknowledgement of both the infeasibility of many of the recommendations and also the costs of many of the recommendations. So as I noted in my article, Wired, I mean, have they ever been around a bunch of like seven-year-olds as if they're not going to be fidgeting and touching this mask all day long? And that's a, you know, a separate issue from the fact that it's hard to imagine just being a child and trying to learn throughout your day wearing a mask. I, my own district is now recommending that parents procure face shields for our children already for the fall. I mean, so to be outfitted in all this sort of like biohazard gear, you know, I'm being a little bit hyperbolic here, but being outfitted in some of this stuff is really detrimental to the kids. And there doesn't seem to be a recognition of how that's not going to work well for them by the CDC. And yet, I've interviewed more than a dozen epidemiologists and infectious diseases experts in multiple countries around the world. And almost universally, they all were acknowledging the fact that like this isn't necessarily helpful or practical. The heads of 20 different French pediatric organizations all signed a letter that stated point blank, it is neither necessary nor desirable nor reasonable for children to be wearing masks in school. So does the CDC know something that the heads of 20 French pediatric organizations don't know? And a very similar statement was released by um, a report that was put together by a panel of experts for the Toronto Hospital for Sick Children. And it's the same thing where they advised that masks were both impractical and that it just wasn't recommended, that it could cause strict distancing, could cause psychological harm. And in France in particular, which is kind of funny, some districts are requiring that the kids wear both masks and face shields. So it's like, a, you know, they, you gotta, they're doubling up on that. What are some of other schools around the world doing to try to help this? Like, you know, obviously not everything will work and there's some that are you know, after you can see them going, say, okay, that's not necessarily something we need to go with. But what are some of the other schools doing around the world? It's really a mixed bag, <laughs> um, both from country to country and also within each country. So in trying to sort of put together some sort of like formalized account is is basically impossible at this point, which leads one to understand that there is no consensus. No one really knows what they're doing. And explicitly, that is what multiple epidemiologists who I spoke with, both here in the States and abroad, said to me, that the ones who had any degree of humility all said, we don't really know exactly what makes sense. So the bigger question to me then is a philosophical one. In the absence of knowing with 100% certainty about something, what do we do? And for me, what doesn't seem to make sense is that in the absence of, you know, 100% certainty, what, you know, in baseball, they say like the tie goes to the runner, you know, when it's at the same time as uh, the, the, the ball gets thrown in when, when they get to the base. Right. Why does the tie always go toward more with the CDC and their guidelines and now what's coming to be many of the state guidelines? Why does it go toward more when perhaps it makes more sense to do less 
Well, they obviously are afraid. The downside, of course, is we don't want cases to go up. When you look at the data and when you look at study after study after study, and again, this is not stuff from three months ago, the evidence just continues to mount that children do not transmit the virus at scale in the way that adults do. Now, maybe things will change in a week or in a month or something, but this is what evidence from around the globe over and over continues to show us. And the last thing I want to ask about, too, is just kind of the effects of all of this, too. Uh, You made mention in your article about the isolation of kids in this, you know, keeping them separate, maybe not uh, having recess the way it used to be, things like that. That also could have an effect on the children. Without knowing for certain, to me, it doesn't make sense to say, well, since we don't know for sure, let's just lock everything down, put them in mass, everybody be apart constantly. You can't touch, you can't do anything. We Here's what we do know. Kids in Sweden, in their schools, in the lower schools, have been open for the entirety of the pandemic. They haven't been wearing masks. They're allowed to touch each other. And there have been no evidence that there are like mass outbreaks. They have 900,000 children in their lower schools, 70,000 teachers, you would think there would be scores of outbreaks, undeniable. You can't you know, keep it secret um, in their schools if children were really at great risk of doing something like this. And you're right. The costs to children are pretty immense. And the mandate of an epidemiologist, it seems by and large, that you know, someone like Fauci, who, by the way, seems like a good man and a wise person and reasonable, but nevertheless, his mandate and the incentives for politicians and for superintendents is to go for avoiding what they fear is the worst thing. Their incentives are not aligned toward acknowledging and protecting a much more vague, but equally, if not more important, effect on children. Imagine going through your day for six hours a day, never being allowed to put your arm around a friend. And the jungle gym is closed because they're afraid if you touch it, even though the evidence of the virus surviving on surfaces outdoors is highly questionable. And I've spoken to multiple microbiologists about this. They want a school bus to be half empty, where you have one child on each bench in every other row. So there is this kind of like overarching theme of isolation. There's all sorts of research about touch and how physical touch is critical for how human beings socialize with each other. And you can imagine it's even more important for children. So, I mean, the list goes on and on about what the costs are. They're very real. And I think the largest cost, which I point out in the article, is what's going to become this sort of blended learning model where children are where the schools need to be at a you know half capacity basically in order to comply with these distancing guidelines so they can only have a certain portion of the students there on any given day and the rest of the time they're going to be home and this disproportionately make no mistake is going to harm working class families where both parents are working because there is no way they can do their jobs and have the kids home you know every other day or every other week David Zweig, contributor to Wired and author of Invisibles, celebrating the unsung heroes of the workplace. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you for having me. That's it for today. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on both Twitter and Instagram. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. This episode of The Daily Dive was produced by Victor Wright and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. 
I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this was your Daily Dive.